All right. Great. I, I just want to thank Patrick. Uh, thank you. So, uh, Victoria was sick this morning, and I guess we found out this morning, and Patrick first time visited last week, and he's playing the piano this week. Okay. Thank you, Lord. All right. Uh, so this is the third Sunday of Advent, as we did our Advent candle, Advent, time of celebrating that Christ came, that for God so loved the world that He gave, He sent His one and only Son. And as part of that celebration, the focus of the messages during this time is on uh, why Jesus came. It's sort of a big overview, summary thing of, of, of not just his coming, but in what he did in his life. Each of the four weeks of Advent, we've had a, a specific theme. And under that theme, uh, I've given three reasons for his coming. Again, uh, knowing that the, the main, the heart reason is that he came to bring salvation. And that's going to be our theme next week. And we'll touch, we've touched on it every week. But uh, each, each week, we have a different theme. And under each theme, three reasons. So if you do the math, that's 12, four times three, 12 reasons Jesus came. 12 reasons for Christmas. And along with these 12 reasons, we've also looked at how that applies to us, how His coming in that area applies to our lives. The theme two weeks ago was Jesus came to teach and to train. And the three points were Jesus came to be our example and we're to, therefore, follow his example. Let's get involved. Jesus came to preach the gospel, and therefore we are called to preach the gospel. Jesus came to make disciples, therefore we are called to make disciples. So we sort of continue on. In many areas, we continue on the ministry he began. Then last week, the theme was Jesus came to obey and the three points were, Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant, therefore we are under the new covenant. Oh, you guys are so good. Jesus came to serve, and we are called to serve. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and therefore we are called to do the will of the Father as well. So as we look at the reasons for Jesus' coming... Uh, we are, I pray, not only getting a clear picture of what Jesus accomplished in the past, but what he continues to accomplish in our lives today. And with that in mind, we now turn to the theme for this week. Jesus came to reveal. Now, what does it mean to reveal? Maybe, maybe you know, no problem, but I'm going to just expand on it a little bit. It means to make something that was formerly no, unknown, known. Something you didn't know is now revealed. Now it's known. For example, if I were to tell you that for the first half of my life, 30 years or more, my greatest fear was, anybody got a guess? Public speaking. Some, some of you guys don't need to know these. Some of this has been revealed. Uh, and if you didn't know that, that would be a revelation to you. I'm making something unknown known. Christmas morning also provides a good illustration of uh, revealing, right? Under the Christmas tree are a bunch of, hopefully, unknowns, unless you're sneaky like I am. 
We call them gifts or presents. They're wrapped so that their contents remain a secret. But when we unwrap our presents, what was unknown becomes known. Your Christmas gifts are revealed. So if that's clear, let's turn to the three things Jesus came to reveal. First, or seventh, again, I'm numbering them all from 1 to 12 over the four weeks. Uh, Jesus came to reveal the heart. The heart, I think we, we know, is a symbol of our thoughts, our feelings, emotions, our desires, just our inner being, right? Uh, not the physical being, but our inner our inner self. Now, the fact that Jesus came to reveal our hearts doesn't mean that at some point he's going to write what's going on inside of us across the sky. That would probably be embarrassing for us, right? What it means, as we will see, is that as people encounter Jesus, as they uh, react to Jesus, their hearts, who they are, inside is revealed. We see this when people encounter other things as well. This past Friday, uh, Christine and I were at a get-together with a number of our old friends, and by old, I mean they're old, like me. They, this group that has known each other for a long time, we still call ourselves the young marrieds because we met when we were young marrieds. It ain't true anymore. I'll just say that. Anyway, Anyway, I was talking to one of my old friends, and the topic of the Dallas Cowboys was brought up. And he being a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and if you know NFL history, uh, he began to berate the Cowboys. His heart for, or really against, the Cowboys was revealed just by that little conversation. And in a much more important way, this happens when people encounter Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, we see this prophesied. Forty days after Jesus' birth, according to the law, Mary and Joseph took him, Jesus, to the temple in Jerusalem for their purification under the law of Moses. And in verse 34, we read, this is Luke chapter 2, verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul your own soul also, so that the thoughts from your hearts may be revealed. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be, may be revealed. Simeon, who'd been waiting for the coming of the Messiah, God had promised you won't die until the Messiah comes, prophesied that Jesus was destined for two things here. First, to cause the fall and rising of many in Israel. What this means is that Jesus would become a dividing line. He would cause great division, not only in Israel, but among all peoples. He's quoting from the prophets here. And as Jesus would later say of himself in Luke chapter 12, Do you think that I have come to bring, give uh, peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. This might seem a little disconcerting. What? Jesus came to bring division. I mean, last week we celebrated, remember, we lit the candle of peace. But the peace that Jesus brought was not between people, as we often think. The peace that Jesus brought was between God 
and men, God and men and women, those who put their trust in him. Jesus did not come, at least in his first coming, to bring world peace. Instead, he would cause some to rise, the Simeon says, those who followed him, those who trusted in him. Though the, the word rise here is the same word used throughout the New Testament for the resurrection. Jesus would cause some to rise up in, in this life and be resurrected unto eternal life. But he would also cause the falling of others. There's a division. There's two kinds of people, the, the ones that will rise, the ones that will fall. The word fall here denotes misery, suffering, disappointment, or ruin. The fallen comes from rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, and Savior. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23 writes, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. The Jews, in Jesus' day, and continuing on, looking for a Messiah. But as a people, they didn't accept Jesus. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for someone who would deliver them from Rome. They were uh, like a, a captive nation, if you will. Uh, uh, Rome was ruling over them. They were in their land for the most part, but Rome was in charge. So they were looking for a, a new Moses, someone who would deliver them from Rome as Moses delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. The idea that the Messiah would be nailed to a cross, crucified, was a virtual impossibility that they just could not get over. It was a stumbling block. It caused them to fall. And most Gentiles throughout history, when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, they're not persuaded. They think it's foolishness. What are you talking about? And they fall. So Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was and continues to be this dividing line. He causes those who trust in him to rise and the rest to fall. That's the first thing Simeon says, that he prophesies. The second, and it's related to the first, is that Jesus is to be a sign that is opposed. The word sign here denotes a, a conspicuous or distinguished object. For many, Jesus became an object of contempt, a sign that the world would mock. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, if you remember, the Romans placed a literal sign above his head. It read, in several languages, the King of the Jews. It was designed to ridicule, this is your king, and look what happened to him. This is your, it was ridiculing both Jesus and the Jewish people. It was symbolic of the opposition and mocking that Jesus faced and continues to face. Opposition that would be so strong that Simeon adds a personal note to Mary, it would cause a sword to pierce through your own soul. Regarding Simeon's prophecy, 19th century theologian Albert Barnes wrote, Never was a prophecy more exactly fulfilled than this. Thousands have rejected the gospel and fallen into ruin. Thousands are still falling of, what, of those who are ashamed of Jesus. Thousands blaspheme him, deny him, speak all manner of evil against him, and would crucify him again if it were in their hands. But thousands also by him are renewed, justified, and raised up to life and peace. Jesus brings division. He causes some to rise, some to fall. 
and he'll be coming us, uh, and he became a sign of contempt, of mocking, of ridicule, of opposition. So, side note: if you're preaching the gospel, if you're ter- telling people about Jesus, do not be surprised if you experience some of this mocking and ridicule and opposition. Why? I mean, not why that, but why did Jesus cause the rising and fall, and why is he a sign of opposition? The answer is at the end of verse 35, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The word thoughts here uh, could be translated motives or opinions, what you think about something, how we, re- how we react to Jesus reveals the true motives, uh, opinions, thoughts of our heart. It reveals who we truly are. It reveals what we truly believe. The heart of a man is revealed by his encounter with Jesus Christ. This was clearly seen when Jesus walked the earth. He created this dividing line. There were those who opposed him, most notably the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. This group took the lead in seeing that Jesus was crucified. Uh, Their true heart of wickedness and pride and jealousy and fear and more was revealed by their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. They only wanted a Messiah that fit their mold. They only wanted a Messiah that would uh, bring them earthly power. Oh, if, if, if the Messiah can create the, the new kingdom of Israel, you know, we'll be up there. We're the Pharisees. We'll be in the top dogs. They were not interested in a Messiah that wanted to deal with their sin and wanted to set up a kingdom in their heart. But there were those who followed him. Uh, there were those who followed him. This group was led by his disciples. This group took the lead role in seeing that the name of Jesus was preached to the world. Their hearts of humility and faith were revealed. They were willing to humbly trust in and follow Jesus as their Messiah, even when they didn't fully understand. They may have at first, we talked about this, James and John, remember last week they wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand and left when he came into his kingdom. They may at first have wanted some earthly power, but when they got further revelation from Christ, they put it aside and they willingly followed him. Even though for the most part, for most of them, it eventually meant their death, ultimately death for their faith, martyrdom. Jesus came to reveal the heart. He reveals hearts when he walked the earth, and he continues to reveal hearts today. What a person chooses to believe about, to do with Jesus Christ, still defines who they are at the core of their being. That's why we have to look inside ourselves. We must reflect on the question, what do you believe about Jesus What have I accepted about Jesus? Have I accepted him into my life? Do I accept him for who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son, the Lord and Savior? Am I allowing him to rule and reign in my life? Or is Jesus just something else to me? Maybe he's, you think he's a a cool guy. I remember watching a video once it was a, a mission sort of video, and they were going around the world asking people what they thought about Jesus. And one guy said, hey, wasn't he kind of like Rambo, kind of a cool guy, you know? Or is he merely a good teacher? 
who had some good things to say. You know, I like, I like what he thought. Do I follow him when it suits me? When I agree with what he taught? Oh, that was a good thing, but this thing over here, not so much. Do I pick and choose going my own way, basically? You know, Jesus said that, I like that, I'll do that. Doing what I want when Jesus says something I don't like. Am I happy that he died for my sins, maybe? But that's really as far as I want to take it. Would I agree with the, the bumper sticker, at least I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, I don't know if it's still out there, that says, uh, Jesus is my co-pilot. Is that, I don't know. It used to be a thing. Which implies I'm still the pilot. You know, you just sit there, and when I need you, when I determine I need you, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. Otherwise, just sit there and do nothing. We have to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Jesus came to reveal the heart. And we must, therefore, examine our hearts. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worthy of living. And I think the Apostle Paul would concur. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So there's something going on here. There's something Paul is calling the Corinthians, and I believe us, to do, exhorts us to examine or test ourselves. And what's the purpose of this exam, this test, to decide whether you're in the faith or not? Uh, do you want to know? Are you, that's a pretty crucial thing, to, whether you're in the faith or not, to determine what you truly believe about Jesus. Is he your king or is he your co-pilot? or even something less. This is the most important question any person could ever ask. What have I done with Jesus? What do I believe about Jesus? And we're called not only to ask the question, so we can ask the question and internally go, yeah, I believe. Yeah, Jesus is my guy. You know, I trust him completely. But we're called also to put that response to the test. If we say we have faith in the Son of God... If we say Jesus is our king, then our lives have to pass the test. So what's the test? How can I objectively examine my heart to, to determine if I'm in the faith or not? Well, I think the Bible's clear about what the test is. In a word, it's what we looked at last week. Anybody remember? Jesus came to obey. It's obedience. In chapter 2, of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. The test of our faith is do we obey Christ? Do we obey God? Do we obey His Word? Not that we're perfect, but, it, but are our hearts, uh, is it our heart's desire to live in obedience to God? And are we growing in both our internal desire and our external obedience. Again, we see this test put forth throughout the New Testament. Just a couple examples. In, in Romans, Paul wrote, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The doers of the law are those who prove their righteousness, their faith before God. Not that our efforts to obey the law can make us righteous before God. That ain't so. It's that those who make the effort to show that they 
have been justified by obeying the law, those are the ones who are in the faith. In John's gospel, Jesus simply says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And if you don't do what I command you, you're not my friends. Isn't that obvious? You show me, you show you're my friends. You show you're in relationship with me. You show you're in the faith if you do what Jesus commands. If you live in obedience to him. And in the first, John's first epistle, he kind of shows he was listening when Jesus was teaching. He writes, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We show we love God. We show we're in the faith. We show we've trusted in Christ when we keep his commandments. And finally, maybe the most famous, James writes, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Genuine faith is always accompanied by works. Works or deeds, living in obedience to God and his word, reveals that you have genuine faith. Again, to be clear, these works, these deeds, this obedience does not gain you faith. It does not gain you entrance into the kingdom of God. That's only by faith. This is the test, though. Do you have faith? And nobody's going to know that more than yourself. Am I living in obedience to God? That reveals that you have genuine faith. And the opposite is true as well. A workless, deedless life characterized by sin shows that your faith is not genuine. So in summary, the test is this. If you truly believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, If you've received him as your Lord and Savior, then your life will be characterized by obedience to him. Again, not perfection, but growth. Living in growth, growing in him. You know, if you sin, you're confessing your sin. And he's faithfully forgiving your sin. And then you're moving on, you're growing. So examine, test your heart. Are you growing in love for God? Are you growing in love for your neighbor? Are you growing in your ability to flee temptation and avoid sin, that sin that so easily besets us? Bottom line, when you examine your life, your heart, does it reveal that you're becoming more like Jesus, or are you remaining more like yourself, or maybe becoming more like yourself, whatever that means? That's the test. And if you fail the test, you must go to the Lord. You must truly put your faith in him. You say, oh, my faith isn't genuine. I need to turn to the Lord. You need to make him. You need to give yourself to him, making him your Lord and your Savior. So Jesus came to reveal the heart. And we're called to examine our hearts, to to determine if we truly believe what we say. Are we living the truth or a lie? And that takes us to our second or number eight point, Jesus came to reveal the truth. In John chapter 18, verse 37, we read, Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The context of this verse is Jesus' trial prior to his crucifixion, before the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate's main concern 
if not his only concern, was whether Jesus was trying to cause division and rebellion among the Jews by declaring himself a king. You know, I'm the, he, he, his concern was, was he the kind of Messiah that the Jews wanted that was going to deliver them from the Roman people? And as we saw in the first point, the answer is yes, that Jesus had come to create division, but he wasn't seeking to instigate a rebellion against Rome. In fact, Jesus had already made it clear in the previous verse, verse 36, if you want to read at some earlier, later point, I'm not going to read it today, that his kingdom is different It's not an earthly kingdom, it's an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, but instead a kingdom where God rules and reigns in the hearts of men and women. So why does Jesus respond with these statements about, did you notice that was kind of weird response that Jesus gave? He seems to change the subject in mid-sentence. Are you a king, Pilate asks. Yes, I am, Jesus said. You, You said it, Pilate. In fact, not only am I a king, but for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world. And you would expect Jesus to say, to set up a kingdom, to rule my people. But instead, he says this, to bear witness to the truth. And what I think he means is that that he came not to rule an earthly kingdom, but to bear witness to the truth of a heavenly kingdom, a much greater kingdom, a much more expansive kingdom. He came to bear witness to the truth of its existence and, uh, hold on here, to the only way to get there. This is the truth that Jesus came to reveal. In his commentary on this passage, Matthew, I seem to be talking ahead of myself. Matthew Henry wrote, I'm going to slow down. When Christ said, I am the truth, he said, in effect, I am a king. He conquers by the convincing evidence of the truth. He rules by the commanding power of the truth. The subject of this kingdom are those that are of the truth. For Jesus, truth matters. He not only came to bear witness to the truth, but he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. There's another dividing line. Are you listening? Do you listen to Jesus' voice? Do you know that's true? As Jesus bears witness to the truth, as he reveals the truth about God, about the gospel, the good news of Christ coming and dying, about the nature of sin, the way of salvation, and so much more. He says, everyone who is of the truth, everyone who desires the truth, everyone who's seeking the truth will listen to my voice. There'll be the ring of truth there. I believe Jesus is saying that those who desire and seek after truth will know it eventually when they hear it in the words of Christ. Jesus came to reveal truth. However, in our current culture, it's become normal to question truth. Not to question whether something is true or not. That is always good and always reasonable. We invite that. If the gospel is not true, then it should be rejected. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, he should be rejected. As C.S. Lewis puts it, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important, which is interestingly how most people treat it. 
So taking the time, doing the work to determine if you believe that Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true or false, is crucial. Work out your doubts. But whether something is true or false is, is not the issue in our day. In our culture, people are questioning whether there is truth or not, or if truth even matters. Some have said that the idea of truth that comes, that some things are actually true and some things are false, is just a Western idea derived from the Greeks. Maybe you've heard people say things like, truth is relative, or that that's your truth, not mine, or what is true for you might not be true for me. It seems like in so many areas, there's a move to redefine the most fundamental words in the English language. And truth is at the top of the list. For, for if there's no truth, then everything we believe can be called into question. However, the Word of God, not written by Westerners, and even common sense, says truth, absolute truth, exists and matters a great deal. For example... I always find these funny. Do you want your doctor to know scientific truths of anatomy and physiology? Do you want him to know the truths about which medication or procedures are best for what ails you? Or are you okay if he views your sickness as true for you, but not for me? And his treatment as whatever feels good uh, that day. Do you want your pilot not pilot the Roman governor, but the plane guy, the guy that drives the plane, to know the mechanical and navigational truths of how to fly the plane you're sitting in correctly, or are you okay if he views which buttons he pushes, which direction he goes as relative? And those are like ridiculous, right? We all see that. However, when it comes to religion, oh, whatever, in the same way, do you want your religion, your theology, what you believe about God, heaven, hell, eternity, your eternal soul, do you want that to be true? Or is it okay if what is true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me? You may find your truth in Christianity, in the Bible, but I might find my truth in Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism, secularism. Does it really matter? Well, Jesus says it does. In John 14, 6, he, we read, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus unapologetically says that he is the truth. That what he says is true and that everything he does is true. And whatever doesn't line up with what he says and what he does is false. That he, in fact, embodies the truth. And if you follow that truth, if you follow and trust in him, he will lead you into relationship with the Father. That's why Jesus came. To reveal the truth that man can be in relationship with God. To be the true way that man enters into relationship with God and receives eternal life. Jesus came to reveal the truth. And so the application for us is both to believe that truth, the truth that Jesus revealed, and to live in or by the truth 
In John chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus said, But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So what does it mean to do what is true? To answer that question, we sort of need to get the context of John chapter 3. It's a pretty familiar passage to many. This verse comes at the end of a conversation between Jesus and a truth seeker, I believe, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Jesus begins the conversation with these words, Truly, truly, this is true, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then Jesus and Nicodemus, if you want to read chapter 3, you can see all of this. Jesus and Nicodemus, they have this discussion in which Jesus attempts to explain to a somewhat confused Nicodemus what it means to be born again. Do I have to enter into my mother's womb again, He said, Nicodemus says. The truth that Jesus is speaking about throughout this passage is man's need to be born again. Or to borrow Paul's later words, man's need to become a new creature in Christ. And as part of this discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus says what is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. I started it even at the beginning of the message this morning, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so from this context, I believe that doing what is true, remember verse 21, it's gonna, it follows all of this, means trusting in the truth, trusting in Jesus, the Son of God. Doing what is true means accepting the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, sent to save the world from their sin. And, it, and accepting or believing this truth results in coming to the light, coming to Christ. And we're not only to believe it, just head knowledge, but to do it, to live by it. This means, as as we saw in our last point, that believing this truth will, it must, impact our lives. Doing the truth means living by the true example set forth by Jesus Christ. Or as John put it in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, whoever says, "I'm, I'm a Christian, I I abide in Christ, I, I live for Christ, and Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. We talked about that in our first message. Jesus is our example. The truth that He taught and the truth that, that He lived must become our pattern to follow. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus came to reveal our hearts, and He came to reveal the truth. And finally, Jesus came to reveal the Father. He made this pretty clear with some very radical statements. This is in the Jewish culture. There's one God, and he says, I and the Father are one. And he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In this verse, Jesus makes three claims about His relationship with God the Father. First, He says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. In this context, Jesus is speaking about both His knowledge of God and His authority from God. He knows God and he has authority from God. Jesus is the only one with the knowledge and authority to reveal the Father. 
Anyone who claims to have a a revelation from God that does not correspond with the life and teaching of Christ is at best misled and at worst a liar. Jesus, the Son of God, who came from the Father, is the only one qualified to reveal the Father. Second, he continues, no one knows who the Son is except the Father. The word know here includes uh, some intellectual understanding, like I know the truth about my Father, the facts. I know the, the truth, who He is. But it means more than that. This word is the Greek gnosko. I think Brian mentioned it already when he was doing Advent, which includes an experiential or relational knowledge. God the Father and God the Son share an, an intimate, loving relationship. They know one another. And because of that relationship, Jesus can, for lack of a better term, He can introduce us to the Father. He can introduce us to God. Because Jesus knows the Father, He can reveal the Father to us. Finally, He says, no one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There are only two groups of people that know God, God the Father. The first group has only one member. Uh, It's Jesus, the Son. Jesus knows God intimately and eternally. The second group are those that the Son chooses to reveal Him to. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can come to know God the Father. And how fortunate we are that Jesus has chosen to clearly reveal Him to us. This was, in fact, His mission. This is why He came, to reveal the Father to people like you and me. If you've seen Jesus, if you've examined His words, His deeds, His life, you've seen the Father. Jesus explained God's love through parables, through teaching, and most of all, His life and his death. By examining both Jesus' words and deeds, we can understand God more clearly. He's revealed to us through Christ. But more than just intellectual understanding, we can have, like Jesus, a relationship with God the Father. And in John chapter 14, we've read verse 6, and then in verse 7, Jesus makes it clear that the only way to relationship with the Father Father, God, the Creator, God, is through the Son. The only way to truly know the Father is to know the Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, from, from now on you do, do know him and have seen him, because you know me and have seen me. We, through Jesus Christ, can experience intimate relationship with the Father. We can experience that, as we read from Psalms, uh, joy in His presence, pleasures forevermore in the Father. Jesus has not only revealed the Father, but He's revealed how we can know the Father, and it is through Him and Him alone. So what's our response to Jesus' revelation of the Father? Well, if there are those here who've not yet come to know the Father, your response should be clear. Uh, Take a look at Jesus, for He's the only one who can reveal the Father. He's the only way to God. If you need more revelation, 
If you're not quite sure, study his life, his teachings. Look at his word. Talk to those who have a relationship with him. But ultimately, you have to decide. Will you place your trust in the Son? Will you trust him and his finished work on the cross for your salvation? Salvation not only from hell and eternal death, but salvation to eternal life in relationship with the Father. This, the, this salvation that we, we speak of will be the focus of the message next week. But you don't have to wait till next week to decide for Christ, who will lead you into relationship with the Father, with His Father. And, and He can be your Father as well. Through Christ, we, are, uh, we can be adopted into the family of God. And then for those who have come to know the Father through the Son, maybe you think back, have I passed the test? You know, a lot of tests through life. Am I living in obedience to Him? I put my trust in Him, and and that trust bears out how I live. What is our response to Jesus' revelation? Jesus came to reveal the Father, and we are called, those who trust in Him, to represent the Son. Through Jesus, people are introduced to God the Father, and through His body, the body of Christ, you and me, the church, people are introduced to Jesus. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The job of of an ambassador is to represent We are Christ's representatives to a lost world. Why? Paul says, we we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, you have to back up to the verses right before that. So verses 18 and 19, you'll see, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Reconcile, to enter back into or enter into relationship with. Our sin has separated us from God, and Christ came dying for our sin, bridging that gap, allowing us to be reconciled to God. And if you've been reconciled to God, you're Christ's ambassadors. Why? Because it is through Christ that you've been reconciled to God. It's only because of the Son that you know the Father. Jesus reveals and reconciles us to, to God the Father. And because of that, we're given the, the, the privilege of being Christ's ambassadors. Ambassadors in our world are official representatives from one country to another. The U.S. has ambassadors all over the world, representing the the United States in foreign lands. And we as Christians are called to represent Christ in a lost world, in this world, everywhere we go. How do we do that? Well, the same exact way Jesus revealed the Father. As Jesus says in John chapter 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's not in your notes, by the way. Jesus revealed the Father in two ways. First of all, he's sending us just the same way the Father sent him. Jesus revealed the Father in two ways, by his words and his actions, his deeds. 
We represent Christ in those same two ways. First, we represent him with our words. We addressed this already when we talked about the fact that Jesus came to preach the gospel. But there are a few things that Paul can add to our understanding. He says, we implore you, this is in, uh, back in verses 18 and 19, we implore you, where'd he go? On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As an ambassador of Christ, we are to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that through Christ, people can now be reconciled with God. I mean, is there, could there be any greater thing? People are out there wandering out of relationship with God, and there's an opportunity to be in relationship with God. And we have that message of reconciliation. We're called to implore people to be reconciled to God. That word implore includes the idea of, and I don't see this a lot in my own life even, begging and pleading. The urgency is real. Reconciliation with God is the greatest gift offered to all humanity and the most important decision one will ever make. If anything deserves begging and pleading over, it's this. So first, we represent Christ with our words. Then second, the second way we represent Christ is with our deeds, the way we live our lives. Do you live a life that reflects well on your Savior? Oh, that guys that, that's a good guy. He really cares for people. Do you truly care about the things Christ cares about? Do you truly care about those he gave his life for? When we let people see that we care about them, it models what Christ is like. There are two words that I feel summarize what it looks like to represent Christ to love and to serve. Our willingness to truly love, not out of some agenda, but just to love and serve people, can be the opening point into the heart of those who are lost. If we truly love those that Christ died for, then we'll be willing to serve them. And if we serve them with a pure heart, then our words, the gospel, will, make a much, will have a much better chance of not falling on deaf ears. And you say, but, but wait a minute, you're asking me to, to love them? I, I, can't, I can't do that. I don't feel that. Okay, admit it. Fall on your knees and say, God, you know, you've put this person in my life and I really think he's a joker, but I don't feel this love for him. Lord, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to do something in my heart and cause me to love him and to willingly want to serve him. Because, because all of this, you know, you could get the wrong impression that how we live, obedience, this test of faith is all about us. It's really all about Christ working in us and through us. So when we find ourselves not passing the test, not sharing our faith, not representing Christ well, it's not a, it's not a time to self-flagellate. Is that the right word? It's a time to get on your knees and say, God, I need more of you in my life. I need your power. I need your spirit that I might love and serve those around me. Okay? So this morning we've covered three more things that Christ came to do. He came to reveal the heart, the truth, and the Father. And for each of these things that Christ came to reveal, there's an application for us. 
We're to examine our hearts. We're to live by, to do the truth. And we're to represent the Son. And I have one final, very practical application for you today. One simple way you can examine your heart, putting your faith to the test. Will I, will I have a little faith to do this? One simple way you can live by the truth, walking as Jesus walked. Would, Jesus, would this be something Jesus would do? One simple way you can represent the Son with words and deeds. And that simple way is just to invite someone to church next Sunday. This, sometime this week. Someone you work with, someone you go to school with, one of your neighbors, one of your family members. Brian, as Ash pointed out this morning, Brian's already done the work of making a little invitation for us to give out. There was, should have been one in your bulletin. I think there's extras in the back. Is that true, Brian? It's true. On the table in the foyer. So take advantage and give someone an invitation. Because as you know, next Sunday is Christmas Sunday. And there may be people in your world who don't normally go to church. But they may be willing or even they may be even looking for a place to attend church. Just that, that one day. I want to see what this is all about. The message next, next week, as I've pointed out a number of times, is that Jesus came to save. And as always, I pray that this will speak to those who've trusted in Christ for many years, but I will also make a special effort to speak to those who've yet to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. So step out in faith. Step out of your comfort zone and be willing to be used by God in the life of, a, of another person or people around you. This is one simple way we can introduce those in our lives to Jesus. And when we introduce them to Jesus, because that's our job, we're, we have a message we just have to proclaim that message. He gets to do the rest. Jesus can then reveal to them the needs of their heart. Jesus can reveal to them the truth of who he truly is and what he's done for them. Jesus can reveal to them the Father showing his great love and desire for a relationship with them. All we have to do is introduce. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for your coming or that you entered into our world and you did so much. Lord, this Sunday we talked about what you revealed, and we thank you that you revealed. We thank you that you reveal our hearts and you reveal the truth and you revealed the Father that we might see the truth. We might see the wickedness in our own hearts. That you might reveal the truth and we might enter into relationship through you with the Father. Lord, I pray for myself, and I pray for each person here. If, if, if they don't know Christ, Father, I pray you would draw them to yourself. Lord, and for those of us that do, I pray you would empower us uh, to be Christ's ambassadors in this world. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.